are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering online. Please go to www.hopechurchguildford.com for more details. We look forward to getting to know you. Do you ever just look at something and wonder how on earth they've got there? Well, I think uh, that's probably how my parents and my friends felt when they first saw me in church. I think lots of you will have friends or family who you can't even imagine becoming Christians. Um, You've given up trying to talk to them about it because they're so far from being interested. Well, I want to share with you my story um, to be a message of hope for those who have got someone that you're just tired of trying to share your faith with. Um, When I was younger, I had no interest in church. I um, actually kind of hated Christians and I thought that they'd surrendered their ability to think for themselves. Um, So I used to love asking them questions that they couldn't answer, that they struggled with. Um, And to be honest, I actually kind of celebrated convincing friends to stop going to church. Talking to Christians about God often led to arguments, which I loved. Um, I grew up as the youngest in a very politically intense family, so uh, being able to argue and being sure of my opinions was key to survival. Um, Arguments with Christians would often end in, well, come to church and see it for yourself, um, which I'd then laugh off and move on. Eventually, I agreed to come to an Easter service and uh, hands up, mainly just because I was interested in the girl who invited me. Uh, And I went fully expecting to mock everything that I saw. Um, But I liken what happened next to Saul on the road to Damascus. While I didn't go blind, I had a radical and unexplainable encounter with the Holy Spirit. It felt like God had finally had enough of me, and like Saul, he decided things would be different from now on. I didn't search for God, I didn't even ask for him. Um, God stopped me in my tracks, he intervened, and he changed my life. I left sixth form on the Friday, infamous even among my teachers for being anti-Christian, and came back on Monday telling everyone that I'd been wrong. I'd love to say it was happily ever after, um, but my newfound faith really alienated me from my family and friends who thought like I had done before. But even though that was brutal at times, um, and still is, and I was alienated from them, I was reconciled to God. God freed me from a sin and a guilt that was so deeply a part of me that it had crept in so slowly over so many years that I barely noticed it until it was gone. My, my constant need to know was replaced with a freedom to trust. And I want you to know that no matter how difficult you find it, reaching that person or how discouraged you might feel, God is able and God is pursuing even those that we think are the most unlikely. I've found hope in Jesus. Have you found hope yet?
Well, good morning, Hope Church, and it's my absolute joy to share with you again this morning. I want to start with a question. What is your greatest need? What is your greatest need? Not what do you need, but what is your greatest need? When I was a child, about probably eight or nine years old, one of my highlights of uh, my time at that age was going into the playgrounds at playtime and meeting up with my mates and trading collectible cards with each other. That might be Premier League football cards. It, it could have been Pokemon cards. Whichever form of card it was, the dialogue would always be the same between myself and my friends. I'd go up to my friend, let's call his name Bobby, for instance. And I'd go up to Bobby and I'd say, Bobby, let me have a look at your cards. You can have a look at my cards and we'll see if we want to do a trade. And then what would happen, almost without fail, would be I would grab Bobby's cards and I would go through them like this. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Need. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Need. We do that so often in our lives, I think, still, even as adults, we can look at areas of our lives and think, ah, oh, I just need that. Whether that's the newest gadget or an app on our phone, or maybe a piece of homeware or kitchenware, which we just think, ah, oh, I just need that. If I had that, then everything would be better. In a simpler way, we can often do it with our wage packet at the end of each month for those of us who are working. We can look at it and we can think, ah, I just need that little bit more. We can also do it with people, can't we? We can look at other people and think, ah, they just need that. If they just had that, then they'd be all right. Equally and potentially more often, we look at people and think, ah, they don't need anything. You know, they've got everything sorted. They've got it, got it, got it, got it. And they don't need anything else. The question I asked at the beginning was, what is your greatest need? What is your greatest need? When I asked that, many needs may have come to your mind, many legitimate, practical needs, real needs, which are very real to you at the moment. And I certainly don't want to dismiss them at all. But the question is, what is your greatest need? And I think the truth of Christianity and the message of Christianity is that there is a greater need which each of us face. And hopefully, as we look at the encounter with Jesus today in Luke chapter 5, we will hopefully see what that greatest need is. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to read through a section of Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read a bit, then stop, read a bit, then stop. Um, and I just want to help us to understand what is our greatest need. And then also look a little bit later on at how we can share our hope, the hope which Dan found and I found, how can we share that hope with others? So let me quickly pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us now as we read it. You'd help us understand it and you'd write it on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Luke chapter 5 today, starting at verse 17. So verse 17 says this. 
One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal those who were ill. Let's just stop there for a minute. That very first phrase, one day, Jesus. It's easy to jump into a passage and miss the immediate context. What's going on before this encounter Jesus is about to have? If we look back earlier, just a couple of verses, it really helps us to understand exactly what's going on. I'll just quickly read verse 15, which says, Yet the news about him, Jesus, spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. Jesus has been uh, healing people. He's at the start of his ministry, and he's actually just healed a man of leprosy. Jesus' fame is spreading throughout the region, so much so, as we read in verse 17, that Pharisees and the religious elite are coming from all areas of the surrounding regions. We read, don't we, that they're coming from every village, from Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem. They're interested, they're intrigued as to who this Jesus is. What is he teaching? They've heard rumours of miracles, of spectacular things happening. And so there's a real buzz of excitement around the region and the Pharisees want to see what's going on. Let's read on into verse 18. Verse 18 carries on and says, Some men came carrying a paralysed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. The fame of Jesus is not just been spreading to the Pharisees, but also to the common people, to the people who often were in great physical need of healings and miracles. And the friends of this paralysed man think, you know what, let's just go. Let's go to this Jesus man. Maybe he can heal our friend. Verse 19 carries on. It says, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Just picture the scene. You've got a jam-packed house, potentially quite a big house. The mention of tiles suggests that maybe this is a slightly affluent area. So there's a possibility that this house is actually quite big. But they can't get in. There's too many people. The disciples are there and they're probably, you know, excited and interested to hear what Jesus has got to say, as are the Pharisees. And then all of a sudden, a paralysed man gets lowered down into their midst. And what does it say at the end of verse 19? It says they put him right in front of Jesus. Boom. Silence? Maybe there was silence in the room. Maybe the Pharisees were, were unhappy, unhappy that they'd been interrupted. How dare this person interrupt our time with Jesus, let alone an unclean person interrupting our time with Jesus. Perhaps the disciples were looking at each other, nudging each other and saying, mate, this is going to be wild. I've seen him heal a man with leprosy. He, he can't heal a man who's paralyzed. Surely not. The crowd, of course, maybe, maybe there's a hushed silence, but maybe they're, maybe they're talking amongst themselves, whispering. I've heard rumours. I've heard that you can heal, heal anything. Picture the scene. And yet, what happens next is quite remarkable. 
If we read just one verse more, in verse 20, it says this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. What? What? Jesus, there's a man right in front of you who's paralysed. Everyone in the room would have been thinking and expecting Jesus to deal with the man's paralysis. I mean, Jesus, it's right in front of you. It, is, it couldn't be any more obvious. His need could not be any more obvious. And yet, Jesus sees a greater need. Jesus sees a deeper need in this man. He sees the need of his sin, of his rejection of God. Jesus looks deeper. Even when the world and the physical signs are screaming out to him to heal that, he looks at a deeper healing and a deeper need. The response of the Pharisees is, is fascinating. And actually, the Pharisees get a bad rap in the Gospels, and rightfully so. They have a stinking attitude. They don't get it. Their hearts are far away from God. But actually, the question they think, and in some translations, start whispering amongst themselves, is absolutely the right question. What does it say? Well, if we read verse 21, it says this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're absolutely right. The question they ask is a question I'm pretty certain I would be asking if I was there. No one can forgive sins but God alone. You see, when we understand sin as not necessarily being just the bad things that we do, but our attitude towards God, our rejection of him, our statement of, I'm going to go my way, not your way, God. I'm going to reject you and go my way. When we understand sin in that way, which is the, the biblical way of understanding sin, then the Pharisees are absolutely right. The only one who can forgive sin is God, because the crime is only against God. And then as we're going to read shortly, Jesus agrees with the Pharisees. What Jesus doesn't do is Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, yes, God forgives sins, but, you know, other people can also forgive that sin against God. He doesn't do that. He is in agreement with the Pharisees. They're absolutely right. Only God can forgive sin. And so what does he do? Well, let's read through the rest of the passage from verse 22. It says this. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Isn't it amazing what Jesus says to them? He says, it's easy, isn't it, to say your sins are forgiven. But in order for me to prove to you that I have forgiven his sins, I'm now going to heal him of his paralysis. 
is a little bit like this. If I said to you, I'm a really good football player, you'd, in order for you to really know that, you'd need to see evidence, you'd need to see me play and then judge for yourself. And this is a little bit of what Jesus is doing here. He said that the man's sins are forgiven, but really they won't ultimately know if that's the case. Anyone can say that. But not anyone can heal a man born with paralysis. And so Jesus heals the man. And the man celebrates and everyone is amazed. But notice, notice the order in which Jesus does these healings. He first deals with the man's greater need, even though everyone else and all the signs were saying, Jesus, his need is his paralysis. Jesus looks beyond that and says, no, your greatest need is your sin. And so he deals with that first. And then secondly, he deals with the man's paralysis. I asked at the beginning, what is your greatest need? What is my greatest need? What is our, what is the world's greatest need? The answer here and the answer found throughout the Bible is our greatest need is our rejection of God, is our sin, is our state before God. And maybe you've heard that talked about in talks through Hope Church, or maybe this is the first time you've heard it. Can I encourage you at the end of the talk, I'm going to give opportunity for you to respond to that because you yourself will know if you have come to God asking for forgiveness, recognising that you have rejected him. But the great truth of Christianity is that there is a marvellous solution found in Jesus through his death and resurrection. And actually, for many of you listening to this talk, you know that truth. And so a lot of what I've spoken about, you will have been in agreement with nodding along saying, yeah, I know that's my greatest need. And I know that that's been resolved through Jesus. And so what I want to do now is I want to say, what I think are three critical things which we as Christians need to know deeply in our hearts and with real clarity and focus as we seek to bring this hope to other people. This series is called Hope Matters. We've been hearing how hope matters to people. I think it's been incredible and it gets me excited. And I hope it gets you excited to want to share that hope with others. But I think there are three things which are absolutely critical to understand in our minds as we seek to share hope with others. And the first is this. We need to know their greatest need. When we look at our friends and our families, we need to know what their greatest need is. The Bible talks about this greatest need in lots of occasions. In Romans 3, 23, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, it talks about how we've all fallen short of the glory of God. At the beginning of chapter two of Ephesians, it talks about how we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We follow the way of the world. We follow our own way and ways which are counter to God. In fact, the great truth of Easter is all about what our greatest need is. You see, when we looked at the story of the paralyzed man, it's it's easy to think that, um, that that was what always happened in Jesus's encounters with people. 
But actually, as you listen to that story, you may have been thinking, well, most of the other healings in the Bible are not like that. Jesus does deal with the external. He does heal people and restore. And, and then he goes on to speak truth to people, deep truth, deep gospel truth. After a healing has taken place or an encounter, then he goes along and speaks about people's greatest need. And it's important to understand that and to recognise that. And yet the greatest need still remains, because if our needs were just external, if our needs were just like the man's paralysis or other needs we have in our own life, then Jesus's ministry would have been very different. I mean, he could have just come to the earth, healed people of sicknesses, illnesses, diseases, cast out demons and then ascended to heaven. But we know that's not what Jesus's mission was. Jesus came to this earth to die for us, to die in our place and to rise again. And so the first thing we really need to understand when we're wanting to share this hope with others is that we need to know our friends and our family members' greatest need. We need to know that in the very depth of our being when we're with others. One of the best pieces of advice I was ever given was to stop myself when I'm out and about in coffee shops or maybe train stations or even at the workplace and to look around at people and just to consider in my heart their position before God. Friends, I really believe when we know in our hearts what the true greatest need of people are, that radically transforms how we engage with people. The second thing, which is equally as important, is we need to meet their practical needs. We need to meet people's practical needs. It would be highly unwise to go in all guns blazing to people and say, I know what your greatest need is. You need to repent. It's not going to work. And as I've already mentioned, in the vast majority of instances in the Gospels, Jesus does it the other way around. He meets a practical need, either through a healing or through a conversation. And then he brings them to a place of talking about something of deep truth. And so we've got to know in our hearts that there are always practical needs for people. And there are also relationships which need to be built before you get to the point that you can talk about that greatest need. Stuart, a few weeks ago, talked of how when he was coming to faith, there were some genuine questions and barriers to him which needed to be answered before he came to faith. My wife, Emma, has a wonderful gift at being able to speak and care for and love people who are homeless. And she's had the great joy of seeing some of those people come to faith. But they would have never have come to faith if she hadn't have loved them, befriended them, got to know them, meet a practical need in some way. And so when we think about how we bring this hope to other people, which hopefully you know yourself, we absolutely need both. We need to know in our core what the greatest need of people is. But we also need to love people like mad, build those relationships, meet people's practical needs. It has to be both. Because there's a great danger of overemphasizing one or the other. Because the danger of overemphasizing just people's greatest need is we come across as cold. 
We come across as treating people like projects. We come across as uncaring, that we don't really care about them, we just want to convert them. Highly dangerous and really unwise. But it's equally unwise to only emphasise relationship and friendship and to never speak about the important things. We kind of leave that to its side. Actually, true friendship, true relationship will care for people, will love people, will meet that practical need. And then will lovingly speak about what really matters, will speak about that greatest need. And so you need both. And I think this is wonderfully summed up in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, where Paul is speaking to the church of Thessalonica and he's saying to them, we loved you so much. We were so desirous of you that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, so not only the great truth about our greatest need and how Jesus resolves that, we were delighted not only to share that, but to share our lives as well. Friends, as we seek to bring hope to people as a church, as Hope Church, and as individuals as part of Hope Church, we need to have both. But I mentioned three things. I mentioned there is a third thing, and this is equally as important to know and believe in the very core of our being and to understand really clearly that God, that know that people are wanted by God to know that people are wanted by God. The Bible talks a lot about this as well. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, it talks about how God desires all men to be saved, all people to be saved. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is looking over Jerusalem and he weeps and says, oh, I wish that I could gather you up as a hen gathers her young, but you weren't willing. And it brings Jesus to tears because he wants them so much to come to him. The book of Ezekiel talks about it a lot, particularly in chapter 18, where God is continuously saying, look, I want to be with you. I want you to come back to me. And it says that he takes the pleasure in no one's death. He wants all people to be saved. So turn and live. God wants people. He wants to be in relationship with people because that is why he created you and me. That is why we're on this earth, to be in relationship with him. To go back to the card example I used at the beginning. Imagine we represent the, the cards and God is looking through them. And yes, there may be instances, there of course will be instances where God looks at cards and says, got it. Because if we put our trust in him, that is secure and he's got us. But actually, as he looks at all of us, what God says as he looks through those cards, our lives, he goes, want, want, want. To take the analogy further, on the cards I used to trade, there was often st little statistics on the cards, like, attack or defense or maybe skill move um, and we can think about that ourselves can't we we can very often grade ourselves in in any manner of things we may think oh how how good am i as a as a husband 
or a daughter or a sister or a mother or a brother or a grandfather? How kind are we? How truthful are we? The statistics say. But the great truth is that God looks at those cars with all those statistics, whatever we think our grades are. God looks at it and still goes through the pack and goes, want, want, want. And that is the third thing I think we need to understand really clearly as we share this wonderful hope with others as a church and individually. That God wants to be in relationship with people. So those are the three things. We need to know people's greatest need. We need to meet that practical need, but also to know that God wants them. So that's us done for this morning, from what I've got to share anyway. And I'm going to quickly pray, as I said earlier on in my talk, for those of you who want to make that commitment for the first time. So let me pray now before we finish. Heavenly Father, I want to come before you and acknowledge my greatest need. Acknowledge that I've rejected you and gone my own way. And I want to say sorry for that, Lord. But I thank you that because of what you've done for me on the cross and through the resurrection, I can have that greatest need dealt with because of Jesus. And I want to put my trust in that and believe in that. Jesus' name. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time, um, please tell someone, uh, either someone within the church or uh, a friend you know who's a Christian. Um, and if you are, if you have listened through this talk and have really been struck maybe by the second half, which uh, I hope has encouraged you and reminded you of uh, truths to help us as we share our faith, may I encourage you to um, go boldly and to go prayerfully as you seek to reach others. Amen. Thanks for listening. We're meeting online every Sunday at 10am. Head to hopechurchgilford.com for more information. We look forward to seeing you.